Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Today, we're embarking on a gripping and heart-wrenching journey that will span multiple episodes as we unravel the mysterious case of Army Specialist Chad Wayne Langford and the haunting circumstances surrounding his untimely demise. Since January, we've been traveling through the Alabama counties in alphabetical order, for the most part anyway, uncovering unsolved missing persons and homicide cases. However, when we were preparing for this episode, we realized it would be released just a couple of days after Memorial Day, a day dedicated to honoring the brave men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice in service to their country. It seemed like an appropriate time to deviate from our regular schedule to shed light on a case that has haunted Chad's family for over three decades. In the depths of a chilling March night at Redstone Arsenal, Army Specialist Chad Langford's routine patrol took a sinister turn. Responding to a stalled car, he vanished without a trace. Moments later, a horrifying scene unfolded as Chad was found bound, gagged, and fatally shot near his patrol car. But what makes this case truly confounding is the official declaration by the Army that Chad's death was a suicide, a declaration that his loved ones vehemently contest. With Chad's claims of working undercover on a clandestine drug investigation, his family remains bewildered, unable to reconcile the man they knew with the unthinkable act attributed to him. For over 30 years, they have tirelessly sought answers, refused to accept the surface-level explanation, and clung to a desperate hope that the truth would be revealed. To help us better understand the details of Chad's case, we asked Michael Fleming of Echo 7 Foxtrot slash Secrets True Crime and a former Marine to join us in the discussion. In this episode, we're diving into Chad's background and history in the Army and the events leading up to March 12, 1992. We've got something a little bit different. We got a special treat today. We've got Michael Fleming here to talk to us. Michael, you want to tell us a little bit about what you do and why people might know your name? Yes. Yeah, so uh, my name is Michael Fleming. I'm a private investigator in the state of Alabama, and I am the quiet half of <laughs> Secret Through Crime podcast. Well, not so quiet. Not so quiet, but usually people seem to enjoy listening to Amber's voice more than mine. That's because she uh, has a great way of repeating what people have said. (laughs) She does. She's awesome. We say I'm the lead investigator, 
for Secrets True Crime podcast. Um, I, I don't know that I'm really the lead. Um, I think we both do. I think me and Amber both do about the same amount of investigating. Maybe sometimes it's a little more on her side and sometimes it's a little more on my side. But yeah. Kind of just depends on how comfortable people are. You know, some people will respond better to women talking to them versus a man and vice versa. It is. And a, a lot of times, um, the, the only time that I would actually record on our podcast was when we were trying to explain a concept like science or, or something like that. Cell that, phone towers. <laughs> that included some really big words that Amber would rather, I embarrass myself trying to pronounce. <laughs> when she hears this she's probably going to kill me so i'd like you guys to do the podcast on my death (laughs) okay we will i don't know she's learning all the tricks of the trade so it might be a hard one (laughs) you want to tell us a little bit about who chad langford is yeah so chad langford um was a military police officer who was found shot uh, while on duty on Redstone Arsenal in Alabama. So for people who aren't overly familiar with the different bases that are in the U.S., where is Redstone Arsenal? Just outside of Huntsville. So Madison County, uh, North Alabama, Redstone Arsenal is a huge base. Uh, It's the home of many different agencies, not just the Army. Um, uh, NASA does a lot of work up there and, and has for years done a lot of work up there, which is why when you come into Alabama um, from Tennessee, uh, one of the first things you see is a Saturn rocket next to the interstate as you enter Alabama. Redstone Arsenal has, has long history. Um, supporting and developing stuff for NASA and uh, space exploration. Is that the one that just got the um, contract to build? I can't remember now what they were built. Were they building missiles, maybe? They do build missiles. In fact, the major command at Redstone is the Army Missile Command. So that's good center for that. I, I remember reading recently there was a new contract that came in and I thought it might have been up there, um, maybe to make some new type of missile, maybe. But I can't. It probably is. I, I would not be surprised. I, unfortunately, I don't keep up with a, a lot of what goes on a, up there on the military side anymore. I can tell you that um, other than the military and, and the NASA stuff, um, there has always been a very large presence of defense contractors that work in and around Redstone Arsenal doing various different things. Um, The Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, DEA, ATF, all have a presence there. Um, Up until recently, and and by recently I mean, I think it was about a year ago um, is when they changed their mind. Um, the FBI was dead set on building a huge training facility on Redstone and potentially moving the FBI Academy 
Um, really, from Quantico? Either, either they were either to move the academy from Quantico, or they were going to move headquarters from DC to Redstone. Um, that's not the case now. That uh, they're still doing some work on on their training facilities that they have there. They're they're trying to build up and take advantage of some of the the facilities and and the space that's offered by Redstone because it's such a big base. Um, and the FBI does an awful lot of training there. Um, and and so does so does DEA, so does ATF. I bet there were a lot of agencies in Alabama that all just collectively went when they decided they weren't coming down here. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, I was just looking at the map of Redstone and see like all the NASA buildings and the federal, the FBI building that's I was like wow I didn't realize they were all so close. The the base started out I want to say in in the 50s maybe even before that a lot of the work that that they were doing there was uh predates the chemical weapons treaties that we now have signed saying that the US will not produce or stockpile chemical weapons um mm-hmm. before that treaty went into effect a lot of the work that the army was doing on chemical weapons went on at Redstone and there's a special team basically within the army called technical escort um and those those soldiers are specially trained to recover properly package um seal up any leaks and move um chemical munitions that are that are found around the world so you know when we're going into Iraq and Afghanistan and someone finds um, a stockpile of old Russian chemical weapons you know buried in a, a pit somewhere um, we have to get those you know out of the way so they're safe um, and can be disposed of properly without harming people in the environment and stuff um, and it's those technical escort soldiers that do that work they're trained to do that and that schoolhouse was on redstone i'm a graduate of that schoolhouse oh i feel like we're getting some inside info here i know (laughs) (laughs) so tell us a little bit about chad's life kind of leading whatever his background is as far as what brought him to redstone right so chad Basically joined the army right out of high school. He he went to high school in Northern California. Grew up in Northern California. Joined the army to be a military police officer, and uh, went to basic training. And then the military police school, which at the time was at Fort McClellan in Anniston, Alabama. So he did his initial training and became a military police officer here in Alabama. And when he graduated, he got uh, orders to Camp Casey, South Korea, as a military police officer. So he went to South Korea and served for three years um, as a military police officer on Camp Casey. And uh, from everything I've seen so far, he he didn't get into any trouble. He, He kept his nose clean and was actually placed on the SRT team the special reaction team for um, 
in case there was some kind of major incident on the base, some kind of breach of security or, you know, threat against the base or something like that. So he was part of the special security team that could be called at, at any time, 24-7, to, um, you know, gear up and, and protect the base and, and the people working on the base. So that's kind of an honor, I guess, wouldn't it be? It it is. It's an it's an achievement. Um, it looks very good for your career and for your promotion potential because you can't just put anybody on on a duty like that on on SRT. I mean, you there are obviously standards of discipline and conduct throughout the military, no matter what your job is, um, and and expectations that enlisted personnel are going to are going to follow those rules. But it's also clear that, you know, that those rules, you know, they're not so stringent to prevent a Marine or soldier that gets weekend liberty from going out to a bar and getting passed mm-hmm. out, you know, drunk or, or ends up in a local jail for, you know, drunk, drunk and disorderly or something. So, but if you're on SRT, and something like that happens, you're no longer on SRT. You can't have those people showing up um, in an emergency situation. I was just going to say that. No, not at all. Yeah. That kind of thing, I mean, you know, it, unless you unless you started a riot or got in a fight or you really did something that, you know, warrants, you know, getting in, in legal trouble, you know, getting drunk on the weekend is is kind of a given. In, in the military that's as long as you enjoy yourself and don't don't bother anybody else generally that behavior is accepted not on srt on srt no you're not doing it because you're on you're basically on call 24 7 technically everyone on active duty is on call 24 7 whether they know it or not <laughs> but yeah when you're on a team like srt um, no, that that won't will not fly. So it looks very good, especially for a young, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old. It looks very good for them to hold themselves to a higher standard than than their peers. And it's I think it says a lot too, listening to what it takes to be on that team. I think it says a lot about his personality that he was very like goal oriented yes. and serious about his career. Yeah. Yeah. There's a word I was trying to think of, but it just went right out. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the word his supervisors used, at least two of them. Um, and that's a word I've used myself for Marines that, that worked for me. They referred to Chad as a hard charger. Interesting. So these are people that recognized he had a goal and a plan, and it looked like he was really working to achieve that. It, he wasn't just in there, you know, biding his time, whatever. Right. He was He was not their problem child, but it's more than that. If I call somebody a hard charger, not only are, are they not my problem child, but they are someone that that I can depend on to, if I need to give them a little bit more responsibility than their the rank on their collar indicates that they should have, that I can trust them with it. 
and know that it's going to be done like it should be. Yes. Well, I think that says a lot to consider in some of the things that we're going to talk about because it sounds like he had a plan and he was working to get there. He, he definitely did. When he finished his, his tour in Korea, he got orders back to Alabama to Redstone Arsenal. He checked in at Redstone, I believe it was June of 91, joined the, the military police company there on the base. He was coming up on his four-year mark, which is usually the end of the first enlistment, unless there's some kind of special case. Some, some MOSs have really long schools, and they don't get to just sign a four-year contract. They have to do a longer contract, but it doesn't appear that was the case with Chad. So he was coming up on his four-year mark. He had mentioned to his dad that he was thinking about re-enlisting. He was thinking about going, starting college and pursuing criminal justice and trying to make more of himself and, and pursue a serious career in law enforcement. Do you know if he did re-enlist since he was coming up on that time? Because don't you normally, you re-enlist, it's not at the last minute that you're making this decision. Like, you make that decision kind of ahead of time, right? Right. Uh, you, you would normally make it ahead of time, honestly, because I don't have his personnel records yet, so I, I can't honestly answer that. But I believe the answer is no, he had not re-enlisted yet. So, Chad, he gets he goes to South Korea, and then he comes Back to Redstone. Yep. Or he wasn't at yep. Redstone to begin with, right? He, no, he was at Fort McClellan. But he was in, he was yeah. in Alabama. He left and then came back. Yes. And you said he was coming up on four years. So he's been in the military three years, a little over three years. So he's still kind of a newbie. He is. He very much is. I'm sure there are things that go on on bases and maybe not everybody's privy to those things. But when I think of a military base, I think everything's pretty tight ran. You know, there's not going to be a lot of break-ins. There's not going to be a lot of fighting because you've got your superiors there on base with you. So you got to keep your act together. And I'm sure things happen, but it seems like that would be not necessarily the equivalent of like a regular police officer as far as what your day-to-day dealings are going to be right it it absolutely is not it's it's a completely different world because your jurisdiction ends at the gate your responsibility is on the base and across the board the crime rate on a military base is almost zero violent crime is almost non-existent it is and and this kind of goes into some of the psychological stuff that we're going to end up talking about. For a young soldier, you know, 18, 19 years old, they decide, I'm going to join the military. I'm going to be military police because I've always been interested in law enforcement. I watched, you know, cops and law and order and SWAT and all of that on television growing up. And I want to be a cop and I want to be an army cop. And they get there, and you're directing traffic. Checking badges. You're running radar. Yeah. You know, you're 
like the most excitement in a week might be when your master sergeant's 13 and 14 year old decide that they're not paying for a whatchamacallit at the PX. <laughs> I mean, that is, that's high drama. That it, it, every car go to the PX because we're going to have paperwork to write. I mean, and, and that's the reality. And it, and just like you hear conversations about combat veterans and, and part of the, part of the cause of PTSD in combat veterans um, sometimes is, is not attributed to actual combat action. It's attributed to the endless hours and days of waiting for the worst thing in the world to happen. And it never does, but you're expected to be ready yeah. if it does. Yeah. And that messes with your head. And you were talking about that he was a member of the SRT. So that's a lot of training, obviously, because they've got to be ready like like that really fast to respond to whatever's going on. So they have a lot of training, I think is what you told us, right? They train yeah. regularly. So I'm doing all sorts of stuff. Drills on the base. I mean, those are the guys that on, on a Saturday we'd see out in front of um out in front of their wherever their office or their duty hut was and and they're spraying each other with oc spray and tasing each other and yeah that's an annual requirement if you're going to carry those but i mean like those srt guys they were just out there doing it because you know once a year wasn't enough so that would kind of going back to what you said about you're always preparing for the worst thing to happen that doesn't actually happen it's probably a little like kind of a step up on that whenever you're on this team it is and it's equally a step down when you move to a new base and you're not automatically on that base's SRT. So did when you said he got on he was on the SRT, was that for was that in South Korea or was that once he got back here? That was in South Korea. When he got to Redstone, he was just an, another MP. So all of that regular training now, now he's got some time yeah because he i mean he's he's basically got to you know he's got to learn the ropes of of the new base he's got to show who he is and what he's capable of to his new supervisors and and how he deals with his new assignments he could have he could have gotten back on an on an srt or some other team but it's not going to be automatic it might have been quicker for him than someone that went to Redstone right out of their MOS school because he, he already had SRT experience. So naturally he should have been higher up in the pickings for Redstones, but it's not an automatic thing. That's so yes, that that's a position that he earned and, and it comes with some respect, but it's not, it's not a formal training. It's, it's OJT. And it is not, it's not training at the MOS level, at the occupational specialty level. So once he got assigned to SRT in Korea, he didn't stop being just a basic military policeman and become an SRT policeman. So when he changed from Camp Casey, Korea to Redstone Arsenal, 
he was sent to Redstone to fill the position, the job description of a basic military policeman. So when he got there, that's what his assignment was, was basic military policeman. So it's kind of something special that you earn your spot on, but it doesn't stick with you when you leave. Kind of like high school sports, where if you move from one high school to another, you were on the basketball team in one place, but you're now in a different school. You don't automatically get on the basketball team there. Right. Because now you're competing with different peers is is basically what it boils down to. There, There are people already there that have been working on their own professional development. And if there's a spot open on that team, they may be more worthy than you. And the team could be full, too, so there's not a spot for you. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, it's not a demotion or anything like that. It's just, it's just the way, the way things are. I mean, any job, you know, you move from one job to another, you might not be entry level anymore because you've got years of experience and you've got a college degree, but rarely are you going to walk in there and be the brand new boss. Right. I imagine that might be a little frustrating coming from one place to the other, especially if all the training and you never did anything with that training and then wanting to come, you know, you come back to a new place. And I wonder if that had any effect on any of the things that we're going to talk about. Yeah, I, I would say that that there were there are a lot of potential things that that Chad was weighing before he made the decision to re-enlist. Because, uh, I mean, think think about the world as a whole. I mean, situations like that affect people. It, it affected me September 11th. I was, yeah. I was at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. When September 11th happened, you know, we all just knew. I mean, we're active duty Marines. We're right here where we've all been on the, you know, on the Mew, we've done, so we knew we were going somewhere. We just knew it. We had gotten everything ready to go. And a year later, we're still sitting at Camp Lejeune. So it's kind of this uncertainty. It's like being ready to go always and then not really knowing. And like, and especially with, with September 11th, we wanted to go. Like, I'm sure you probably saw news stories about military members that went AWOL and found a way over there on their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of stuff was happening. Um, we were ready to go. We wanted to go. you talking about that. You called him a hard charger earlier, said that his superior said he was a hard charger. So for somebody who is really determined and focused, that I imagine he was probably feeling kind of the same way. You know, send me where the action is. Exactly. I mean, if you're an active duty police officer on base and you know you're seeing news stories like like we see all the time now you know uh, so many people got shot this weekend so many people got you know this that and the other and you were on duty all weekend and you wrote three freaking speeding tickets yeah. and you know the highlight of your week was I got some an extra thing of fries at Burger King. Um, you know that it doesn't sound like that kind of stuff should should really affect someone, but it it really does. It really I, I equate it to what I see in the corporate world now, where 
I deal with guys that, you know, wear a, a tie and a blazer and sit in an office all day and they become complete lunatics if a spreadsheet has a decimal place out of whack. You know, they lose their mind and you think this guy's going to go, he's going to get off of work and go straight to the bar and drink an entire fifth of something <laughs> and probably go home and off his family because of the way he acted about this Degum spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And, and we see that in the corporate world all the time. And I think, I think it's very similar for different reasons with, with a lot of active duty people that especially, I mean, remember, we're talking about 19 year olds, 20 year olds, and, and they join, they join the military for, for something that is a possibility. I have never seen a recruiting ad, you know, somebody in, in service, Charlie's sitting behind a desk processing paperwork. I've never seen a recruiting ad for that. But there's a whole lot of jobs that that's exactly what it is. That's not what they were sold on, but you, you've got an 18-year-old that can legally sign themselves up, sign a contract obligating them to do that very thing for four years. And the slogan, right, was be all you can be. Yep. Oh, yeah. So you join it, you sign up, and it's going to be this really fulfilling, um, making a difference job that you're in. Yeah. And then it turns out to kind of not be exactly what you thought it was going to be. Yep. And if I'm not mistaken, back then, I'm, I'm pretty sure that back then, you could do four years as a military police officer, honorable service, no problems, decide I'm not re-enlisting, and you exit the service and apply to be a police officer at your local police station, and they'll hire you because you've got four years' experience as a military police officer. But the first thing you're doing is going to police academy because you do not meet the standards and training required by that state to be a sworn officer. And that's kind of sad, actually. When you think about the time you've signed this contract for your time in the military, and then you're in that field where you would think the logical step would be going into law enforcement, then to find out, I've just spent four years and I don't even meet the basic requirements. Yeah, exactly. And that could have been something that he was also looking at. You said that he wanted to go to college or was thinking about going to college for a criminal justice degree. Maybe he had looked at some of these law enforcement agencies to see what, you know, did he qualify to get a job there? You would assume you would. So if you find out that you don't, that could be a little depressing. Yeah. I I also want to mention, because I I don't want it to come across like I'm just speculating and, and not recognizing that my career was very different from his career. Not only was it different services, but we were almost a decade apart. The reason that I think that my assumptions about his outlook on his career and the, and the things that were probably weighing on his mind, the reason I think those are, are probably accurate is because another thing that he did when he got to Redstone was he asked to 
be sent to either airborne or air assault school. Now, obviously, there's not a whole lot of need for military police officers who can jump out of an airplane. Right. That's yeah. not a school that would be in his in his roadmap of milestones to achieve if he were to do a full career in the Army as a military police officer. Um, it would look good for promotions just because it shows he's more well-rounded. It kind of proves that he is a hard charger. Um, but having that patch, that airborne patch, or a ranger tab, or, or any of those special schools that the Army those has, are hard. they're hard and they're bragging rights. Mm-hmm. And in his case, as a military police officer, getting to go and prove himself in that community against those peers is definitely bragging rights. He was denied. He has to go to either one of those schools, and his supervisors and officers at Redstone told him no, and the explanation was that they were too short-handed on Redstone to be able to operate with him gone to one of those schools for so many weeks. Hmm. So like I said, I mean, that to me, that shows that he... He had seen the be all you can be ad and he had done three and a half years and he did not feel like he was being all he could be. So he gets there and he no longer has the SRT to help kind of fill that time. Now there's probably a lull in what he's doing every day. So just looking over the timeline that you had sent us earlier, it looks like maybe he had started hanging out are spending some time over at Alabama A&M, maybe he, hanging out he with did other eventually. people. So um, it doesn't look like that was immediate. Um, he he got to Redstone. Um, he, he did like going to the E-Club, so he would go to the club on base. Um, no one ever, no one has ever come forward and said that they saw him drink an alcoholic beverage, ever. They, they interviewed people he served with in Korea. And even they said that, you know, he would come and go to the club with us, but he never drank. He would never drink alcohol. Um, but he did go to the club. He had a lot of, a lot of uh, interaction with females. He apparently was very, very good at talking to women, and they enjoyed talking to him. Well, he's a good-looking guy. His picture is on the um, on the Unsolved Mysteries page. Yeah, yeah. So I can see where, and everybody's hears about it. You read about it, like people, women love military men. Yeah. So you know, he had a good-looking guy in the military. You know that he probably had a lot, lot of women paying attention. And and he did, and and we know that because a lot of a lot of the people he worked with, a lot of the people that knew him, made the comment that that he made phone calls all the time. He and eventually he went and got a pager. Back then we called them beepers. Um, and the reason that he said he got it was because it was cheaper to the, like the monthly bill for a, a pager was cheaper than getting a landline 
phone in his barracks room. And, and that, does, that does make sense. I'm, I'm sure that was accurate. Um, and it wasn't uncommon. There, in fact, after he got his, one of his coworkers went and got one too um, for the same reason. It allowed him to schedule his calls so he wasn't having his privacy invaded. But also yeah. say that the women or whoever he was talking to could get in touch with him. And and I'll be honest, um, you know, not not faulting him. Um, although, you know, some people may look down on it, but he was talking to multiple girls at the same time. On the day that he died, he actually um, made plans to be with two different girls when he got off of work. And I don't think they knew about each other. That was one thing looking at the timeline that, so he had a new girlfriend and it said they had plans at, he said he would see her at 2330. That's 1130, right? Yep. I go to bed before then. <laughs> Who that's that you're, you're you're not the only one. You're saying you're going on a date at eleven thirty. That's some red flags. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking through the timeline myself because there there was another girl that he was supposed to meet thirty minutes before that. So he, he did that, but I I don't think I don't think the womanizer phase kicked in immediately. Um, because he met a girl. Um, her name was Roxanne. And they started seeing each other, and and they got pretty serious. Um, she actually bought a ring and and proposed to him. Wow! Well, that's not something you hear every day. No, no, it's not. But uh, eventually, they they agreed that they both had things that they wanted to do, goals that they wanted to accomplish before they got married, and um, so they broke up. It, it appears to have been a mutual decision by both of them, although. Well, I was going to ask about that and say, is there, and there's some discrepancies about that because. There are I was some, just going to say, if you watch Unsolved Mysteries, that's not what it looked like. There, there are some discrepancies and, uh, and, and I'll, I'll definitely touch on those. But, um, but when they broke up, um, and of course the, the investigation doesn't, didn't really focus on all of that. Because Roxanne says he broke up with her because he was trying to keep her safe, right? Yes. Her initial story was that uh, it came as a complete shock. He was on the verge of violence. Just uh, like she showed up. They were supposed to go out that night. And he goes in the room and comes back out and, and is basically yelling at her, you've got to leave. You've got to go. We can't see each other anymore. It's it's not you. It's because of my job. Like like he was trying to make her believe that he was protecting her from something by breaking up with her. That was the initial story. Do you think and this is. I don't know, Roxanne, so I don't know. But do you think this is something where maybe he had tried breaking it off previously, but like that message wasn't making it where it needed to go? Because what. I'm hearing in my head with this story is here. He's been here since June. They start dating at some point after he gets here. Then it's in March. And at some point between now and then she has bought a ring because she's tired of waiting on him. And it hasn't even been a year yet. Decided they're going to get married. Then 
they split up and like he like does he lose his mind because like that's the only way to get her to go away uh because of the 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 change mm-hmm. in, in the story i mean i uh, with with that relationship uh, i don't i don't really know what to think yeah so so what does it shift to well i'm i'm looking at dates here so in in the Huntsville times december 14th 1992 they finally, Roxanne finally agreed to an interview. And that's where she tells the story that um, that I, I just relayed. She says, out of the blue, he told me to leave. He had tears in his eyes. I knew then by the look on his face that he was involved in something that he didn't want to be involved in. So that's completely different. And in the interviews, She says they had discussed marriage during the relationship, but that they had drifted slowly apart and that they mutually terminated their relationship at the end of January 1992. At that time, Langford told her, since I lost you, I don't have anything. And that Langford also told her he was going to turn into a hood again. A what? A hood. So this was one of the things that a lot of the people CID interviewed um, related to them was that Chad had told them stuff like before he joined the army, he was in a gang in California, that he was a thug, he had he had gotten in trouble, you know, stuff like that. These these people when they interviewed and, and the investigator asked, you know, well, what, what do you know about Chad? What, what did he tell you about, you know, his life before the army? And they all had these wild stories about, you know, basically a gangbanger from California. And, um, he joined the army to try and straighten his life out kind of, kind of thing. And you talked to his dad. Did you ask him about that? Was that part I, true? I didn't because it's in the interviews. Yeah. Where CID asked him, that's nothing like what his dad described him as. Um, you know, he was, he had a, a very loving family and, you know, supported family. He had lots of friends in high school. Um, he was very personable and, you know, outgoing. So maybe he had kind of a deflated sense of self, felt like he wasn't living up to his potential. He didn't feel like he was a success. So he made up these really adventurous and exciting stories to make his life sound better, make him feel better about how other people perceived him. In a really weird way. I think that's absolutely wrong. Because the picture of him before the army that, that I get when I read all of these reports is totally different. And part of that um, external law enforcement coordination that I was talking about included calling. Uh, I I think I specifically mentioned maybe on accident um, that one of those law enforcement agencies was Texas. You did. Yeah. And that was what they were doing with those. They were calling the places that he was in before he joined the army, you know, and that, do you have any record of this guy? You know, do you, you ever have any trouble out of him as a juvenile? And and the answers across the board were, 
know. I mean, they might as well have wrote in the report or heard of it. Yeah. You know, nothing like that. So that 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 kind of stuff was just completely off the wall. So what I just read you that Roxanne said, that report is the one dated 10 July 1992. So shortly after, shortly after Chad died, CID comes and talks to Roxanne, and she tells him the breakup was mutual. And then December 14th of the same year, she tells the local paper this story that ended up on Unsolved Mysteries. Well, and, and there there are stories in here um, about some of these other relationships where he was, um, uh, where Chad was apparently uh, very jealous. That phase that he apparently went into after he and Roxanne broke up is is when it appears that he started going to Alabama A&M University and, and talking with, with girls at the school. Um, now, some of those, some uh, they they would also come on base on the weekends and and go to the E Club. So there's a good chance he actually met them at the E Club. Um, but they were, in fact, students at Alabama A and M, um, and uh, so he was he was talking to them as well. And they were paging him, and you know, while he was on duty, he'd go and he'd stop at a payphone and call him back. That was. That was pretty normal for him, and um, like I said, even even the Unsolved Mysteries episode in '93 um, pointed that out that um, that he frequently used payphones everywhere on the base to to call his girlfriends. Um, and it's not like cell phone records today, where that's something people would go look at. They could, and they and they did um, pull call records oh. from the payphones. Yeah. Um, which some some of the entries on the on the timeline you'll see that's how they know that they they know that so and so is who called the payphone at the civilian recreation area at this time and when they do the interviews and and these people tell them well the last time I talked to him was at this time and I called him at this number well the investigators already knew or quickly determined that okay that was this phone call on the payphone at the rec area so before we get into those, the calls, and I actually do see on here where the other female, he met her at a, over a traffic ticket, but does it appear he had any issues with anybody on base? I mean, everything, because it might not have, he might not have started playing the field when he first got there, but we said he got there in June of 91 and then he dies in March of 92. So it's not even a year yet. So it's not. A really long time that he's in Alabama, right? Right. So, in, and it does, that's not really even a lot to have a girlfriend. Yeah, um, and so he wasn't he wasn't completely like you know a loner, brand new guy when he got to Redstone because there were a number of soldiers that were interviewed during the investigation that were at Redstone that had served with him in Korea. Mm. So um, now when those people got there, you know, as compared to when Chad got to Redstone, um, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but um, there were people at Redstone that he had been around for three years. 
there was there's only one person they interviewed that stands out in my mind um, as having admitted to the investigators that he and Langford did not get along, and it was because um, Langford uh, Chad had uh, given him grief for uh, an infraction that I, I can't off the top of my head remember exactly what it was, but um, it's some something minor. He was of the mind that Chad only only got on to him to harass him, um, and so he didn't like Chad. Um, he didn't associate with him, but that was the only one that that had an answer like that. Everyone else that that was interviewed, you know, basically had had good things to say about him. Even the ones that that implicated him in bad stuff that we'll talk about here in a little bit. But even those people talked talked of him, you know, like he was he was a stand up kind of guy, maybe a little bit weird. Yeah, only one person that was interviewed really voiced any, you know, dislike of Chad. So that kind of off the bat kind of takes off like concern that maybe he'd been on outs with somebody that was on base or, you know, not getting along with people in general. Overall, he seemed seemed to be fine. People he got along with people fine. There was no issue there. Yeah. I, I would say so. Although and, it would be interesting to know um, which corporal's wife he was calling. Yeah, and why. Yeah. Yeah. My thought was, okay, did he call because he was trying to reach the corporal and he wasn't there so the wife answered? But then you look at all the calls ahead of it and it's like, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. That's one of, the, one of the outstanding questions that I have. And hopefully as as more records and information come in, we can start answering some of those. I'm assuming that they may have interviewed all these people that he called. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Um, in the initial investigation, there were at least 47 individuals interviewed. Jeez, that's a lot of people. Wow. And I say at least because what what I have right now from CID is the summary report to higher headquarters from from the initial investigation, and so it's not it's not the actual interview transcripts and stuff like that. It's it's basically a summary of each of those interviews, but each of those interviews is um, included as an exhibit that's attached to the report. And so there, there, were, there are 47 individual interviews that were attached to that report. And that's the interview. So that's what they, the interviews they felt were relevant. That doesn't necessarily mean it, that is everybody that they talked to. Yes. And, and they categorized those in one of two groups. And they labeled them as either significant interviews or other interviews. Okay. So you don't know how many people ended up in the other pile? Um, I, I would say that um, anybody that anybody they interviewed that they felt had some relevance to the investigation is included in here. Yeah. What I would make an educated guess of, though, is that they interviewed 
a lot more people that turned out to have, you know, you walk away from those interviews going, well, clearly that person doesn't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like maybe y'all cross paths in the grocery store, but you didn't really know each right. other, didn't interact on a regular basis. You knew his face if you saw him, but that's about it. Exactly. So, you know, if they interviewed one of those people, I, I wouldn't be shocked if that interview doesn't make it into the final report unless they need to go back and interview that person because they can alibi somebody else. Gotcha. That makes sense. And I, and I do see at least a couple of cases of that where they, you know, on this date at this time we interviewed so-and-so and he had nothing to say. And then there's a paragraph right under it. Two days later, we interviewed him again and asked him about this other person that, that has been interviewed to verify their alibi. Yeah, that makes sense. I would imagine there are at least a few people that, you know, they, they talked to that didn't have anything to do with it and weren't even familiar with other people involved or potentially involved that needed to be re-interviewed. So bottom line, at least 47 people talked to by the 10th of July, 1992. That's a lot of people in kind of a short time frame. Yeah. He died March 12th, 1992, and by 10 July, 1992, they had interviewed 47 people. Man, that's, they moved faster in their investigation. Four months. Yeah. Yep. And now keep in mind, some of these people, some of these people are not only not at Redstone Arsenal, they're not even in the United States. Some oh, of these yeah, people, in Korea too, they, so. sent, they sent a resident agent from CID in Korea to talk to them in Korea. As far as leading up to March 12th, he's obviously, he applied for the airborne assault school, right? And he's been denied. And other than that, probably being really disappointed. Um, does everything seem to be fine? He seems to be fine. He's happy where he's at. Maybe a little bored, but overall, he seems fine. Nothing really seems out of the ordinary. It does up until February of, of 92. Um, and, and this is about the time that the womanizing period appears to have started. Is that about the time of the breakup? About the time of the breakup, about the time that he started... Um, talking regularly to some of the girls at Alabama A&M, he started spending more time off base. He purchased three weapons. And at that time, he was not old enough to purchase a handgun in the state of Alabama. And he actually had one of his coworkers buy it for him. Um, bought a, a nine millimeter pistol. I forget the other one he had. He bought, an AK-47. Wow. This is kind of just speculation, but is it something he felt like he needed those, or it's just kind of like... I like guns. Yeah, yeah, like we have a safe in here, you know, that has guns in it. So there were two stories that came out about why he did that, and, and these are, are things that he told others, and then they told the investigators. Uh, the first one was that he just liked guns 
and he and his his buddy that bought the guns for him um they they just like having guns and shooting them and you know we're military police officers so guns is part of it and so we just wanted guns the other story which is is part of what leads into um his father's concerns over the investigation as a whole is that he was in danger from people on and off base that if they found out who he was that he could be in mortal danger and he needed weapons to protect himself as in finding out that he was in the army or finding out that he was military police gotcha he uh in january or february early 1992 um he started telling his father on regular phone calls that he had been assigned to perform undercover work dealing with drugs and weapons um on and off base and and that that's what he he was doing and at the same time he was still being a regular patrol officer with a regular shift wearing a uniform and a badge and everything on base and that he was deeply he would tell his dad that he was scared and he was concerned because if the people that he was working against in this undercover role discovered that he was actually a military police officer that he would be a dead man i was trying to find i was i just looked at something and i should have written it down to ask you because there was a comment in a newspaper article from roxanne and it was something along the lines of she had heard rumors that he had been hanging out with bad people at A&M and had maybe gotten involved with some things that he shouldn't be involved in. Yeah. Would that make more sense than the story about not saying that that's true, but would that seem to fit more with what you know about being a military police officer versus an undercover thing? It absolutely does make a lot more sense to me that you know he i don't think that he would have wanted necessarily to tell his dad call his dad and tell his dad you know look we had this breakup and i'm pretty dissatisfied with life in general Mm -hmm. and i've i found this group of friends that you know i like being around and and they don't make me feel like a, a loser and they're they're not necessarily from an acceptable segment of society, um, you know, not talking down about about them, but there are, especially in the in the early '90s, there were a lot more notions about and judgment mm-hmm. over who you hung out with, who you dated, um, and and it comes out in these reports. I mean, a lot of his coworkers made comments about him about him starting to talk to and and date the girls from A&M and and the way that they expressed that was well you know he he's 
he's changed everything about his life. He's he's going off to A&M University and, and dating black girls and, and hanging out with black guys. I think that's actually, um, I just found the article that I was looking at. Um, it said, Miss Van, you said Hooser? Is that how you say her last name? Said Mr. Langford, who was white, told her that he was dating a black woman at the university. Maybe he was dating her to get information. Maybe that's why he changed. And it was in that same um, interview where she's talking and she says he totally changed his crowd of friends. I heard a lot of rumors about him hanging around with some bad people. I heard he was going to A&M to do a drug bust. I heard he had a lot of enemies there when he died. Yeah. So that, you know, that kind of fits in with what you're saying, because this she's Van Hooser is Roxanne. Right. And that's the one that, you know, bought the ring and proposed to him. So that has been a lot of a lot of the debate and a lot of the concern over over Chad's death in general and especially them uh initially ruling it as a suicide. The army initially announced that their investigation determined that he shot him he shot himself. Um, and there's there's a lot of details to get into a, about that, but obviously when stories started coming out from Chad's father um, and stuff like that about this this change in Chad, you know he 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 started dressing in dark clothing. He he got his ear pierced. He's hanging out with you know these these people at the e-club and going off base and doing stuff. There were rumors, um, you know, all, uh, about um, Chad and one of his coworkers um, were, were offered $500 to make deliveries. So they, they pick up a package one place and deliver it to another place. And every package was $500. Wow. And supposedly those packages were drugs, and and so they were delivering drugs for five hundred dollars every delivery. That was another one of the stories that came out. And so it it looks, especially when you take the story that Chad told his dad about being undercover, it does it it seems very plausible that that maybe that was going on. Which is why the the part you just read the the quotes from Roxanne, I, I think. I think she was able to, you know, to justify all of that based on what she had seen, you know, mm-hmm. well, that makes sense. You know, that would be why he started, you know, dating and going over to a- A&M University. And- like she said, maybe he needed information. Mm-hmm. They're making that fit into what they think or have decided is going on, that he is being truthful about being undercover and all of that kind of explains his behavior because he needs to fit in with the new crowd that he's hanging out with. Yeah. So here's the first problem with that. And and the investigator actually wrote this in the initial report that's dated 10, 10 July 1992. Um, they had already uncovered that story. They heard from Chad's father about that. They had interviewed Roxanne, they had interviewed these other people and heard these other stories. And the investigator makes a note, 
like calls it out separately in the report. This is the special agent's note or comment. That is completely against every SOP out there for undercover investigations by CID, military police, or anybody in law enforcement. You would never, never put someone undercover that's not completely undercover. You do not put someone undercover from 8 to 5 and then have them working the gate or driving a patrol car from 6 to 11. Yeah. That's insane. You're, you're going to get them killed. Your Whatever your goal for the investigation is, is going to fail. I mean, it, it just does not pass the sniff test. And we talked about this a little bit before we started recording that, you know, and uh, actually a little bit earlier too, that he's three, almost four years in, but he really hasn't had this investigative training. And so what I had asked you before we started was, is there kind of a separate un- unit? Like, you know, yes, down here in Alabama, in civilian world, you work at a law enforcement agency, you may go from patrolman to investigator. But that doesn't necessarily equate in the military world. No, it doesn't. That kind of operation would have to be controlled by, at a minimum, the the local CID resident agent. Um, and he is not a military policeman. He is, he's got a different, if he's, if he's in the military at all, he may be a civilian, you know, Department of the Army civilian. But that, that would be entirely controlled and coordinated by them. It would most likely no one at, uh, at the military police station, the, uh, what we call PMO, the provost marshal's office on base. They probably, except for maybe the commander and, and some of the senior people at the unit, probably wouldn't even know that's going on. Because, I mean, if you had every patrol guy driving a car knowing that you're doing an undercover operation, well, you're not undercover anymore. Yeah. So, and and the the amount of time he'd had, I mean, yeah, he almost four years in the military, but you're going to put this guy that was born and raised and went to high school in Northern California on an undercover drug and gun operation in North Alabama. Like he's not going to get figured out real quick. I mean, he's 19, 20 years old. He is not blending in to make massive, you know, gather massive evidence at Alabama A&M university. It makes me think of, um, remember the Titans whenever, the guy from California comes in to be the quarterback, Sunshine. And there's like a noticeable difference between the teams that have now, you know, integrated together. And then this kid comes in from California with his long hair and everything else. And not that he was necessarily like Sunshine, but, you know, there's a difference. You can see it. One of these things does not like the others. <laughs> there, Well, there's accents and mm-hmm. there's you know, behaviors. and that That he didn't drink. Yeah. But if you think about it, too, even if um, in no matter whether you're in the military or in civilian law enforcement, you don't start out getting to do the undercover stuff. No, that's probably not even four years in unless you've been specifically trained for that. You have to work your way up to that. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. The devil's advocate here. 
is it possible that he could have gotten himself in trouble and he, this was the way he was getting out of it? By by working on forever? Like, like he started getting, you know, into the wrong crowd and doing the wrong things by de- delivering drugs and he got found out and they said, well, keep it up just keep until we can get skinny on what's going on. They may think he's in the military, but he's, you know, he's a, he's Biden his time until he gets out, you know, kind of like an informant. Yeah. Kind of. That's yeah. what I was going to say. So they turned him into an informant because, because he got caught. Um, that I'm glad you asked because that brings up, what will be my second point, but I think it's I think it's probably the most important because to me this is actual evidence. Talking about, you know, his inexperience and his background and, and all of that and why why that doesn't make sense for them to put him undercover. I, I think that's a hundred percent accurate, but it's also speculation. I mean, there could mm-hmm. be some strange reason that they might have done that. But if they had done that this would not have happened, and it absolutely did. Uh, in February, Huntsville Police Department, they interacted with Chad on two occasions. Uh, one time, they uh, did a traffic stop on, on him because he was, quote, acting suspicious in a used car lot in South Huntsville. Mm. There had been a string of break-ins and attempted theft, at some of the car dealerships. So Huntsville PD was doing, you know, stepped up patrols. They were keeping an eye on things, trying to catch who's who's doing this to, to the cars on the lot when the lot's closed. And they found Chad hanging out at one of these one of these places. That was closed? It was closed. It was night. Interesting. And uh, you know, they stopped and got his information and, and so on and so forth. But I mean, they didn't have anything to arrest him on. They told him to move on, and he moved on. I'm sure that somewhere in the conversation it came up that, hey, I'm a military police officer on base. So, you know, I was just stopping to look at my map in the glove box, and they probably, you know, let him wander off. So it wasn't like he was walking around the car. My dad does this sometimes, or he used to do this. He, when we were looking at vehicles, if he saw one and the dealership was closed, but it was by the road, he'd get out and go look at it, even though it was closed. Um, I, I don't believe that that was the case. I think he was in his vehicle. Just kind of sketchily parked out there. Uh, but the exact wording was that he was acting suspicious. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that, you know, that could be probably anything. Yeah. I suppose just because they have, they were, on high alert because of what was going on. Any yeah. vehicle sitting outside of a dealership at night when it's closed might be suspicious. Yeah. So on another occasion, and uh, the best I can determine, this was also in February, Huntsville Police Department, and that's why I said this, this may have been the same incident. It's, it's not really clear in the reports. But they also had an occasion where they observed the AK-47 laying in the back seat of Langford's vehicle. Of course, that, that that weapon's not illegal, so that really wasn't a problem, but... But you don't just drive around with it in your back seat. Right. And the Huntsville Police Department let the base know. And that created a problem because Langford did not have that weapon registered on base. And he wasn't old enough, right? 
on base, uh, you know, he'd be all right. But you you have to if you have a weapon on base, you have to register it on base and oh, gotcha. Unless you were assigned family housing, so if you lived in the barracks, you could have your personal weapons, but they had to be stored in the armory with all the other weapons. And if you wanted to go hunting on Saturday, Saturday morning, you had to go down to the armory and check your own weapon out. Um, and Langford was due to receive a counseling for that from his supervisor at the time he was killed. Is that kind of, so is a counseling kind of like in the Marines and they're called like an NJP? No. So that's Article 15. Um, uh, a counseling is is a formal, written, or it can be an informal, oral, um, basically a, a corrective action meeting. This is, mm-hmm. I'm your supervisor. I'm telling you where you have not met expectations, and this is what you need to do to improve. And if you do not improve, then there will be repercussions that will probably affect promotions and or retention. So kind of like a formal reprimand. Yeah. It's um, it's similar on, on the officer side of the house in the Navy and Marine Corps. Um, it, there's what's called a nip lock. It's a, a non-punitive letter of caution, mm-hmm. which I think is really genius grammar to describe exactly what it is. It's a written letter telling you you're not in trouble yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're on your way. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he was due to get counseled, uh, and that would have been really the, uh, from what I know right now, that would have been the first, uh, you know, not bad but not glowing remark that would have been in his, in his personal record that would follow him the rest of his time, in the army. Was the AK forty seven? Was that one that his friend had purchased for him? Right, because he wasn't old enough to buy guns. I don't believe so because because it's a long rifle. So um, in Alabama, I, I think I think sixteen is probably gotcha. the age where you can purchase a rifle. So that he's due to get this reprimand for the assault rifle. Yeah, but because he remember he lived in the barracks, so he had he did not have a legitimate place to store these weapons without them being registered on base. I guess if he isn't old enough to have a handgun, then that probably wasn't registered I would, either. I would assume not, but oddly enough, there's nothing in the reports about him, you know, being potentially in trouble for that. But I'll do you one better because this came out later in the investigation. Um, so outside of the car lot incident and the AK-47 incident, local civilian law enforcement um, had been building a case and was considering Chad as a suspect in a series of car break-ins off base. What? And they were very, very close to coming after him. Was the kickoff to that, that first, what the car lot, the, acting suspicious was that the first like inkling they had that this might be our person 
or were they already looking at it and they thought, let's do something preventative and um, go ahead and stop I, it? I, I can't answer either way. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked if, if that car lot incident is what put them, put him on their radar. Um, those, those reports, uh, some of them were exhibits in the CID reports that, that I don't have yet. Um, but the controlling authority of those um, is outside CID's jurisdiction. So, um, you know, that, that would rest in whichever agency it was, either Huntsville PD or, mm-hmm. or Madison County. I believe it was Huntsville PD that was, that was looking at him. So they felt like they had a, a strong enough case to prove that he was. Well, I, I think if they had a strong enough case to prove it, that he would have been charged already. Um, yeah. I think they were probably, they were probably at the point, this is my opinion, where they, um, where they felt like they had enough to reveal that they're looking at him mm-hmm. so that they could interview him and see what he has to say, you know, to explain himself. So that would have been a huge like mark against him. Oh, absolutely. As a military, military police career. officer, if, if he, um, if they have, had even charged him, I, I would not be surprised if, um, if the army wouldn't have administratively discharged him when they charged. If you get charged for a crime and you're, you're a police officer on base, you, I mean, you have no trust and confidence in that person right. anymore. So he's not going to be working as a military police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, innocent until proven guilty, but, um, yeah. you know, reputation has a lot too. Could the inner or the, um, could the military take over the investigation? Only if he had been doing it on base. I thought so, but I wasn't sure. Okay. Yep. They have zero jurisdiction out, outside the base. So n- there's this like noticeable change in his behavior. Now he's also a potential suspect in a string of car robberies. So somewhere along this path, after he got back to Alabama, like something just really kind of shifted him off course, it sounds like. I would say something happened in January or February that, um, you know, he was was acting out. He was getting himself involved in stuff that, you know, it was out of character for him. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the reason I bring up those those things with Huntsville PD and stuff is because, remember, we were initially talking about, well, you know, could he have been working undercover? Or could he have been turned as an informant? Well, I think if, if, if someone had him working undercover and he's get and part of maintaining his cover is to be suspicious in a car lot, carry around an AK-47, and maybe break some windows and steal something, that he's mm-hmm. probably not going to be looked at as a suspect for those crimes. Right. The, and Huntsville is going to have, or Madison County, whoever, they're going to have kind of probably a heads up, at least. Because you would think if it's some kind of drug bust that he's working on, which it's not always true, but there would be some kind of communication and collaborative efforts there so that if the army is running the investigation, you want the local police keeping you apprised of what they're running into. You would think they don't have to know that he's the one that's undercover, but they would know there's some kind of yep. 
thing going and, on. And right? that's kind of the third point. Like I said before, they did a lot of coordination with outside agencies as part of the initial investigation. And part of that was obtaining statements from Huntsville PD, Madison County, Aaliyah, everyone around, checking with them to see, is this guy a confidential informant? Is he, you know, is he working part-time for you? Is he an undercover, on some kind of undercover operation with you? All of them emphatically said no. He is, he is not part of any undercover operation that we have going on. And wouldn't they have had to notify the Army anyway before they just kind of took over their, I mean, technically you're an asset, right? I was just going to say you pretty much are property of the U.S. Army if you're in the Army. And there was, uh, and part of that was also looking internal. Do we have any undercover operations going on on Redstone Arsenal mm-hmm. that he might be part of? And the answer to that was, it was more than no. And I'm, and this makes me feel like they're, I mean, they're being honest. Mm-hmm. They said, yes, we've had one undercover operation on Redstone Arsenal during this time period. And it was because of allegations against a civilian contractor on base who was rumored to have been paying bribes to contractors and other personnel on the base to do things. And so they were running some undercover operations to determine if that was in fact true and and was going on. And Chad Langford was not part of that. I say that doesn't sound anything like what he was doing. <laughs> no. At least if he was part of that, they're not saying it. Right. Because his dad fully believes he was part of this and there's a cover up. Yeah. So part of this is going and looking. I mean, all you can do is look at what the documents say and they say he wasn't in it um, or wasn't involved with the undercover work. But for his dad, he fully believes there was some kind of cover up here. Yeah. And and I still think that there may be potential for that, but I don't believe that if there was a cover-up that it had anything to do with undercover work, it may have been more of a greater conspiracy amongst Chad and his co-workers for things that, I mean, because Chad's not, I, I mean, I don't see, I don't see this guy just, Oh, my girlfriend, you know, we broke up. Uh, I'm sad and lonely, but I don't drink. So I'm going to go get my ear pierced and wear this trench coat. And at three in the morning, I'm going to go break into cars. I don't see, uh, you know, that's not a, that's not a one man thing. Right. You do that for acceptance. Right. You do that because you're with a group of peers that are doing that. And I think personally, that that would be much more attractive if those peers were your peers on base, not some random thugs you met at the E club on a Friday night. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. if he, if he found out that other specialists in his unit or some of his NCO leadership was making extra money on the side, delivering packages 
or, you know, going and stealing cars or taking radios out of cars. That was a big thing back in, in the early nineties. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if that was part of it. They were, they weren't stealing cars. They were stealing stereos, mm-hmm. you know? So if, if that were, I see that as being much more likely if, if he, he's been there almost a year, you know, some of the people he already knew because he was in Korea with, and he finds out that, you know, they're making an extra, you know, $500,000 a month. And all they've got to do, you know, all I've got to do is go out here and, and do this. And that's a hell of a lot more exciting than what I'm doing at work. Yep. And I can look like a real badass driving around with an AK-47 in my backseat. Yeah. And I'm in the military, so I'm probably not going to get in trouble if I get pulled over. I'm a military cop, which makes it even more likely that I'm not going to get in trouble. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. 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 It seemed like a, a safe bet. So aside from what what didn't happen, probably, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he could have gotten himself in trouble, regardless of any undercover operation, given what he was delving into. Yeah. And, and that's where I think a lot of the evidence points towards the possibility and and the likelihood that that he didn't shoot himself that someone else was involved potentially involved and and the most most reasonable reason for that is whatever he was covering up with his his undercover story to his dad you know he, he got in too deep or or maybe he started feeling guilty and wanted to back out. I don't know, but but he clearly had some stuff going on that you know were not accolades. They were not going to result in in him getting promoted and going far in his career. And I I would even say he knew that he was he was about to get in trouble. I mean, he. I'm certain that he knew through the grapevine that he was about to get counseled about that AK-47. And there's, um, on Unsolved Mysteries website, it actually talks about that he was potentially being looked at for stealing from the Army PX or planning to steal from the Army PX. Yep. So that's another scenario that came out in the interviews. And the the way it it, it came out from um people that were part of the scheme that freely admitted, which which I find unusual, that they were part of this. But the, the story is that Chad had this idea and recruited three other soldiers and they were planning to rob the money van from the PX. So like, you know, the van that would go and pick up the cash and carry it out to the bank to deposit it. Like the armored vehicle? I don't know if it was an armored vehicle or not. That um, They aren't very specific about what yeah. type of vehicle they used, but, but that was, yeah, essentially that's what we're talking about. The, the money van that shows up and picks up the cash and it was pretty pretty elaborate plan that they described. So what they were wow. 
planning to do was um, the, uh, of the four of them, uh, one or two of them were going to basically carjack this van. On base. On base. So the van pulls up the PX, the guards go inside, they come out with the money, and surprise, here's two guys that are stealing your van and the money. That sounds like such a horrible plan. Yeah, on a, on a, yeah. It gets better. Um, so they take the money, they get in the van, and they drive off. Obviously, the guards are going to do what? Uh, They're going to call the cops. Yeah, yeah. So guess who's on duty and in close proximity to be the first officer responding? Chad Langford, who has replaced the rounds that are issued to him at the beginning of his shift with blanks. So he responds and shoots at the robbers knowing no one's going to get hurt because he's firing blanks. But to make it look real, the robbers return fire with live rounds. But Chad's not worried because he's wearing his military police issued bulletproof vest so he takes a round for the team, and they get away because all of the other responding officers, when they get there and find that Chad is shot, they're more worried about him than chasing a van off base. Okay, so this is a hypothetical plan they've come up with. They haven't this actually pl- done this yes. because it sounds like almost what you're going to tell us happened. Nope. So it never happened. Um, and apparently, no one knew anything about this until Chad turns up dead and CID starts asking people questions. And these conspirators all admitted to it. They were not charged with conspiracy because under the UCMJ, and this is according to the JAG office on, on Redstone, said, that we cannot charge them with conspiracy because an element of that charge is an overt act. And while they had a nice, you know, well-rounded, well-developed plan. They didn't actually go through with it. They never made an overt act to start the planning process. So the series, there was a series of vehicle break-ins and thefts that occurred on Redstone Arsenal between 23 and 25 February 92. And the provost marshal investigator, so somebody that Chad probably saw every day he went on duty, had developed Langford as a suspect in the break-ins based on the break-ins occurring in Langford's general patrol area always while he was on duty and because he had been stopped by the Huntsville Police Department for prowling around a used car lot at nighttime. Huh. That's very interesting. PMI. Remember, PMI is, this This is on post. This is military. PMI advised Langford of his legal rights in connection with these break-ins on March 3rd. Langford declined to waive his rights and requested an attorney. So that's just 
a week or so, 10 days ahead of when he dies. Yep. And if I'm not mistaken, that would be the same day that the last time he called his dad and told his dad that he, he was afraid that they were about to figure it out and kill him. Have you read the comments on the Unsolved Mystery website? I don't think I have. So there's a guy on here. He said that he was in the same platoon as Chad in basic training. Now, anybody can be anybody on the internet. But he said Chad was a good soldier and was the platoon leader for most of our training. I won't speak ill of him as he died in service to our nation, but Chad had some serious issues I noticed living with him for five months. That might be somebody you want to talk to. His name's Aaron. Um, he would become a recluse at times, ignoring everyone and going into his shell for days at a time. He would also snap at times and get very violent, but that is fairly common when 50 male trainees are lumped together under those conditions. However, Chad did like to tell tall tales at the time, t- talking of such things as conspiracy theories and that he just wanted to go to war and kill people. Not that uncommon, again, considering the bravado among 50 young adrenaline-fueled trainees. One thing now sticks out. Chad claimed to be an orphan. He said he had no family and grew up in a foster home with no biological family to speak of. I retired from the Army. I chose to serve a full career. I have seen and heard every self-proclaimed Jason Bourne, Audie Murphy war hero type story. I'm not saying Chad's death was a murder or suicide. I've not seen the evidence. What I can tell you is that if he was working undercover with CID or MPI, it would have been stated so by the command. Yeah, I agree with that. I completely agree with that. He said that his opinion was that he had some serious um, psychological issues. And that might actually, um, I mean, if this guy actually did, spend any amount of time with him he probably would know like what his psychological mindset was at the time yeah yeah that's very interesting i i I find that completely believable based on my personal service i mean i i knew guys like that yeah the bravado and all of that i wonder if this is the same aaron there's another one that's not an anonymous poster that said we all knew it wasn't suicide we all had our suspicion as soon as we got on base and word began to spread i was called in and interviewed by cid about things they heard that i was aware of regarding someone who was suspected of being after chad another soldier who lived off base and was involved in some shady stuff the guy was scary just one look at him and you knew he was bad news on march 12th he's talking to several women and this is something that since his, he started changing in February leading up to March, he started talking to all these different women. He, according to the timeline, talks to a civilian female at like one thirty, and they make plans to meet up that night. He met, that he met over a traffic ticket. What what does that mean, Mike? So she was driving on base and got a traffic gotcha. citation. And then she came into the police station on base, I guess, to either pay the ticket or talk about it or try and get out of it. I don't know. But she met Chad when she came into the police station. And they, they exchanged numbers and started talking to each other. Huh. So they made plans to go out at some point that night. It, we don't really know what time. Just they had some plans. Yes. Then he calls another female 
who he had been stationed, was she still in Korea or they just were over in Korea together? They were in Korea together and she was on Redstone with him. Oh, man, I don't know how he didn't get busted. Um, Then he tries to call Roxanne, who they've broken up at this point, but nobody really knows why they broke up. He talks to the girl. He makes plans with her, the one he met over the traffic ticket. Then he calls or talks. Yeah, I get he called. It says he calls the female that he had been in Korea with, but she's also at Redstone. He tries to call Roxanne. Then he calls his new girlfriend. So he had another girlfriend. Yeah. But she does. I guess she didn't answer. Her roommate answered when that. But when he doesn't talk to her, then an hour later, he calls the wife of the corporal. And I guess, is he on duty? So I did find the the section where he was issued his 10 rounds of 45 caliber ammunition and the time is not noted. So going back to the timeline, the first time where it's obvious Chad is, is working, is on patrol, is around 1730 when he picks up a, there's a, a new military police officer who's been assigned to the base and he's basically shadowing Chad for about an hour. What's not in the timeline is that during that hour or 30 minutes, actually it says 1730 to 1800, that new military police officer was not in uniform. He was in civilian clothes. Okay. That, that... seems odd to me. Yeah. <laughs> so he was, he was just right. They, he was riding around not in his uniform? Not in his uniform. Because uh, at 1800 on the timeline, you see that Langford dropped dropped that guy off at the barracks. The reason he dropped him off at the barracks was so he could change into his uniform. And when he came back, he changed into his uniform. And when he came back out, Chad was gone. Oh, so he was supposed to be picking him back up. He wasn't, He yeah, he dropped him off, but he was supposed to be coming, like he was supposed to sit there and wait for him to come out. Yeah, he was He was waiting in the car for this guy to go in and put his uniform on. But that's so bizarre guy, because you would think if he's in the car to begin with, I mean, I guess if you've made friends and like maybe they didn't have a ride, you just went and picked them up from wherever they were. Maybe. I don't the, the only situation that I can see that makes sense is if that guy had just showed up, just checked into the unit, you know, Hey, I'm the new guy. I'm supposed to report tomorrow, but I'm here now. Here's my orders. What do you want me to do? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, you know, the desk sergeant or maybe Chad volunteered. Hey, you know, since you're here early, jump in the car, I'll take you around and show you the area. Get you go ahead and get you acclimated to what you'll be doing. So they jump in the car and go do that. Even though he's not in uniform, that's the part that's still weird to me. If you're going to go ahead and take him on, you know, a, a, a run through the territory, you should be in uniform. But even more importantly, maybe the Army's just, I don't know. I, don't, I was in the Marines, not the Army. In the Marine Corps, you get orders, you show up to a, a new unit to check in. You show up. You're in uniform. And service out. Well, that's what I was just thinking. Even if you were just checking in, wouldn't you have your uniform on? You're in the Marine Corps. That's all I can speak of. 
but in the Marine Corps, it, be the dirt bag that checks into a new unit in civilian clothes and see how well that, that tour of duty is going to go for you. Because right off the bat, you have skylined yourself. And you would not be yeah, going yeah. for a joyride in a patrol car after that. You would be standing on the quarter deck getting screamed at. He drops the guy, the new officer that's reported. He drops him off in his, to go change. And he's supposed to be coming back out. But when he comes back out to go with Chad, he's gone. He's talked to all his women. And then he's even made plans. So while he is, this is what I would like to know. Did he call? So it says girlfriend contacted, the A&M girlfriend contacted him through his pager. And they talked about a planned date for that evening. So did he call, when she contacted him on the pager, did he call her? Or she, uh, how did that work? Yes, they did talk. So is that before uh, or after he dropped off his? That was after. So he drops the guy off and then basically goes right to call her. Yeah. Wonder if that's why he dropped him off. Like right when he did, instead of waiting. Why he left him instead of yeah. waiting on him? I, I would say so because you see 15 minutes later at 18.15, a staff sergeant that knew Langford from Korea saw him and actually spoke to him in the billeting area. So where is, what? what is the billeting area? Is that where you check in? Uh, that's where they live. So the barracks. Oh, gotcha. I'm not exactly sure which billet area he's talking about, but since they refer to it as the troop billet area, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say that this is the area of the barracks. So um, the barracks for the MPs, which is where Chad and most of these other people actually live, is, is, is right behind the, uh, the military police station. There were four main buildings that uh, I believe were multi-story, um, but some of them were connected. So actually, there were there would be if you think of apartments like multi-story apartments, there were three, six, nine, eleven buildings organized at angles with like a little central courtyard in the middle. Mm -hmm and parking parking areas surrounding them. So I I would guess that, that is that's what he means by the troop billeting area. More than likely the new guy walked outside and and saw that Chad's car wasn't sitting where it was when he got out of it. Yeah. Assumed that he had been left. He's a new guy, he doesn't know the area. In reality, Chad was probably just parked, you know, another Hundred or two hundred feet away, wherever there was a uh, a payphone at. Yes. So he's over there in this area, and obviously he is expressing. This has got to be around the time too that he was denied. Yes. For the school, because he's telling this staff sergeant how like angry he is about being denied yeah. access to the school or being allowed to go to the school. And and the word wording that I used there in the timeline is is a direct quote from from the interview. Um, Langford said he was pissed off because he got denied going to Airborne or Air Assault School. I wonder if this because we were talking about this change seemed to happen. 
in this February time frame. We know that him and the girlfriend also broke up around this time frame. Could the maybe what have either been the tipping point in all of this or maybe what started it was this not going to the school? It it could be. I I would I would say it I think it would be much more likely that it was kind of a perfect storm of that and the girlfriend stuff. Do you know when he got denied? I I don't think I do. I don't think it is. I didn't know if they put that in the um summary, but I was just thinking if that is was he denied because they were looking at him for these break ins? You know, that would make sense. Or if it came after. Yeah. Because it was March 3rd, right, that they were talking to him about all of this. And then here we are on March 12th, and he's telling a staff sergeant that he's pissed off about not getting in. And if all of that's happening around the same time, if his denial has come after they've already kind of formulated him as a suspect, that would be a real good reason for why they would not have accepted him into that school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. And I I cannot ignore, and this is why I'm, I I cannot say that I am a hundred percent against the suicide idea, because it is very plausible to me that someone who I mean you've read even comments off of the off the unsolved mysteries mm-hmm. that indicates that you know he tells tall tales he he boosts himself where he can that this is a habitual thing right you know that. And and like you said, it it reveals some deep personal insecurity and and some issues there that if if that person if that's their response to feeling that way about themselves is to you know exaggerate if not outright lie about their background and and things that they do if all of a sudden all of that's going to catch up with them and the truth is going to be revealed, that can have some major implications. Join us next time as we continue our look into the death of Specialist Chad Lankford. If you have any information related to the death of Specialist Chad Lankford, please contact Army CID Redstone Arsenal Resident Unit at 256-876-7592 or 256-876-7592. You can submit an anonymous tip on the CID's P3 Tips website, which will be linked in the episode description. You can also contact Echo 7 Foxtrot's confidential tip line via phone or text message at 205-282-0740 or by email at tips at echo7foxtrot.com. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers.
If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.